Wow, that was gospel, wasn't it? I could ease back and just listen to that and be relaxed and just be in God's presence. And what we've got to do as we've, as we've heard that and been moved by that is to, to continue with that, to continue to be ministered to. We can be ministered to in worship. We can be ministered to in the Word. We can be ministered to in, in conversation. The Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is here moving among us and can minister to us. So let's just remain in that place where we're open to what God is saying and what God is doing. We're into a short three-week series called A Fresh Look at God. Last week, Leon took a fresh look at God the Father. Remember, with the, the trampoline, just jumping and preaching at the same time, that was clever. And this week, I'm taking a fresh look at God the Son, and I'm thinking, how can I top that? Maybe with some parallel bars and just preaching and swinging. And then, and then next week, Leon's there with, with a fresh look at God the Spirit, and I was thinking maybe some high rings, he could have those, and he could be swinging on them and doing some acrobatics. So no pressure there, Leon, acrobatics. It's not happening, is it? No, so we'll, we'll, we'll leave it with the trampoline. There's no parallel bars, there's no rings, and we're just going to get down with, with this one. And Jesus, Jesus the Son, well, it's massive, isn't it? It's massive. Taking a fresh look at him, believer or non-believer, Jesus is massive. He's massive in history and in culture with musicians, writers, artists, politicians, for thinkers and creators in the last 2,000 years. Jesus has been there and influence and inspiration. And for me, for me, personally. The more I hear about Jesus, the more I I read, the more Jesus intrigues me, the more Jesus challenges me, the more Jesus amazes me. And it was Jesus that 15 years ago, it was Jesus that 15 years ago, when I rediscovered the Christian faith, it was Jesus that got hold of me. It wasn't religion, it wasn't ritual that caught me in my fall. It was Jesus, the person, the Son of God, who is alive. And I knew that something was missing in my life. And I knew that the the Gospels, the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, I knew that they told the story. I knew that they talked about Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death, his his resurrection. And back then, 15 years ago, that was the first time I read them like that. Looking for God, looking at this man. And as I read, I cut loose. I cut loose from what I'd been told to think. I cut loose from what I, I knew of religion. I went for Jesus. Jesus roaring on plugs. And that search altered my thinking. It altered the direction of my life. And Jesus is massive. And there is so much, so much you can say and preach about him from the Bible, from the New Testament. And it's knowing where to go with this. And I've gone for four areas, four areas. And even last night, I wasn't sure. It didn't feel right and I've changed it. And the four areas that I want us to take a look at are these four. Parables, miracles, women and parties. Parties. I did have hypocrisy, but that didn't really work. And I wanted to go for the life. I wanted to go for the the attractive Jesus. And it's been exciting. It's been exciting working on this because it is Jesus. It's Jesus that gets me passionate about my faith. And much of this comes from stories, 
stories because that is how the son, Jesus, comes to us. Stories, either the, the facts about his life and, and ministries as they are recorded in the, the Gospels or the stories that Jesus told. The fiction that he used to teach us about God. And sometimes I think that is where Jesus gets lost. Because there is a, there is a danger that in our reading of the, the Bible we think we know Jesus. We think we know him. Maybe we learnt all that when we were growing up, gentle Jesus, surrounded by children. And we go for the, the later New Testament. We go for the letters, Romans or Ephesians or Revelation, or we go for the, the very ancient, the, the Old Testament. That is where we get to go deep. That is where we get to be serious. But take a fresh look. Read the Gospels over and over. Jesus is more radical, more controversial, more imposing and, and passionate than I ever believed. So let's start firstly with parables. Parables. The son Jesus had style. He had style. He was a, a teacher, a, a Jewish rabbi, and often he would answer questions with questions and with stories. He had a rabbinic, even postmodern style of communication where stories carry our view of the world. And the stories that Jesus told were casual. They were casual and yet powerful, called parables. They were called parables. And they were ordinary stories about soil and seeds, meals and coins and sheep, bandits and victims, farmers and merchants. And they were secular. They were of this world, familiar to, to everyone. Of the 40 or so parables recorded in the Gospels, only one has its setting in church, and only a couple mentioned God. So as people, as people heard Jesus tell these stories, they didn't think, they didn't think they were about God. They didn't feel threatened or challenged by them. And his listeners relaxed. They relaxed their defences. They played along with it, they enjoyed the story and they walked away confused. Confused, wondering what Jesus was on about. Wondering what the parable, the, the story meant. And it got fixed. The parable got fixed in their imagination. And then, later, like a, a time bomb, the meaning would explode. A God thought, a God emotion in their lives. Jesus had been talking about God all along. And God had invaded them. He had invaded their lives. And parables are clever. They are very clever. They get round our defences. They fix in our imaginations. They reveal our hearts, but they don't inflict any shame. They challenge our minds, but they don't stir up any trouble. They separate seekers from the, the time waster, with seekers returning later and asking, what does this mean? And often, having told a parable, Jesus would walk away without explanation or further call. And then his listeners started seeing the connections. The connections. God connections. Life connections. Eternity connections. Parables are time bombs. They're time bombs of God thoughts and God emotions. Maybe we want rules, but Jesus gives us stories. Maybe we want the law, but Jesus shows us grace. And one parable, one parable that I can never put down is the Good Samaritan. The 
parable of the Good Samaritan. And I get excited about retelling this. And I want us to, to cut loose from what we think we know about this parable. And let Jesus speak to us again from this incredible story. The parable comes in Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. It starts like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded, and there was agreement there, but the expert pushed it. He pushed it. He wanted to know who was his neighbor. And then Jesus, in answering the question, he tells a parable, he tells a story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Just coming in here, coming in, with Jesus telling his parable to the expert in the law. This is where the parable starts to get dangerous and the time bomb starts ticking. A priest, a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The two most respected religious figures in Jewish culture passed by on the other side. And what is the equivalent to us? A priest, a vicar, a minister passing by on the other side. Doesn't seem possible, does it? But a Samaritan, a Samaritan as he travelled came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him. Jewish people hated Samaritans, they were divided religiously and what is the equivalent to us? We can use our imaginations here. That's the power of the parable. The Samaritan. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The parable was over and Jesus asked the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. And boom, the time bomb goes off in this man's life. The priest, the Levite, those expected to to reach out, they were cold, they were hard. But the Samaritan, the hated man, he was the neighbor. He showed mercy. And this is where we get challenged. I want to believe, I want to believe that I'm like that Samaritan reaching out, having mercy, but sometimes I'm sorry. I'm not so sure. And is this just an isolated incident on the road to Jericho? Does it take robbers and violence before I get involved, before we get involved? And who is my neighbour? Is it the the Christian community? Is it non-believers? Is it people of other religions, Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus? Is it my next door neighbour? Surely it starts there. And the questions and the, the challenges come. And I want God. I want God to give me something definite. I want rules. I want to justify myself. But Jesus gives us stories. I want the law, but Jesus shows us grace so that we can show 
grace. Parables are God thoughts. They are God emotions that invade our lives and we never finish with them. They keep challenging us. They keep moving us closer. And the more we read them, the more we live them out, the more we become like him. The more like Jesus we become. Then secondly, secondly, there are miracles. Miracles. In the four Gospels, Jesus is described as performing around 36 miracles. And they suggest that he did many more. He restored sight. He healed contagious skin diseases. He healed the lame. He cured fevers. He put a a severed ear back on after one of his disciples lashed out with a sword. He stopped a hemorrhage. He restored a, a withered hand. And he returned three people back to life. Jesus had power. He had power over nature. He multiplied bread and fish. He changed water into wine. He calmed a storm. He walked on water. He gave fishermen a a supernatural catch of fish. He had miraculous knowledge and was aware of hidden facts and attitudes. He performed exorcisms. He released people from demonic powers. And these miracles won't be denied. Even if science or logic struggles with that, you can't create a miracle-free Jesus. And then there was how Jesus did miracles. Often they were done in quiet and unspectacular ways. Sometimes he, he turned bystanders away. He wasn't a showman, didn't do miracles on demand, never did them for profit or publicity or never to save himself. Always they were done with the minimum action and words. And Jesus is never recorded as as praying for God to do a miracle or even doing a miracle in God's name. Jesus did them himself. He was the authority. He was God here on earth. And the motive often given for the miraculous was compassion. Compassion. The miracle that I want us to look at here comes in Mark 3 verses 1 to 6. Mark 3 verses 1 to 6. And maybe it's the controversy here that gets me. Jesus. Jesus, he walked into a a synagogue. It was a Sabbath, the, the holiest day. And the Pharisees and the Herodians were already looking. They were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely. A man was there with a shriveled hand and Jesus said to the man, stand up in front of everyone. Heads would have turned the moment, filled with tension. Then Jesus asked his listeners a question. He asked them a question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? The question was met with silence, cold and hard. And Jesus looked around and there was emotion in him. It says that Jesus was angry and deeply distressed, distressed at their stubborn hearts. So Jesus did it. He did it right in front of their eyes. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was completely restored. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they couldn't take it. It was too close, too in their faces. Jesus was breaking their rules and the authority that Jesus had. His words and his actions, it was as if Jesus was God. And it says that they went out and began to plot how they might kill Jesus. And really it wasn't a shock that Jesus was finally tried and charged and executed. The shock was that it took three years of doing these things before it happened. 
and the question. The question maybe is why? Why? Why did Jesus do miracles? What did they mean? And the answer, it's here. It's in this story. Miracles are clues. They are clues. They are signs that point to the identity of Jesus. That he was more than a man. That he had power over sin and evil. And it is significant that Jesus, Jesus often performed his miracles for people at the edges of society. The rejected, the social and, and religious unclean. Because it showed God's heart. It showed God's heart that he's full of mercy and compassion. God's heart that is always reaching out right to the edges. And it is significant that Jesus often exposed the hearts of those that witnessed his miracles. That their hearts, their hearts, the hearts of the Pharisees and the Herodians were cold and hard. But more than anything, more than anything, miracles challenge people to give their verdict. To give their decision on who Jesus was. In Matthew 11, when John the Baptist, another important figure there, John the Baptist was in prison. He heard what Jesus was doing. And he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? John was about to lose his own life. And he wanted to be sure. He wanted to be sure that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited saviour of his people. And Jesus sent this response back to John. He said, go back. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. The miracles are the clues. They are the signs that point to the identity of Jesus. That he is the Messiah, the saviour of his people. And the miracles of Jesus still challenge us now to give our verdict. What is our decision? Is Jesus the Son of God? If the answer to this is yes, then by faith we're compelled to follow him. Now thirdly, women. Women. And in the culture at the time of Jesus, as in most of the ancient world, the role of women was, was limited. It was limited. They were treated as little more than possessions. But there was something moving. Something moving. Something counter-cultural about Jesus as he walked with and, and talked and, and ministered to women. The story that I want us to look at here comes in John 8 verses 1 to 11. John 8 verses 1 to 11. Jesus. Jesus is in the, the temple courts. And the people had gathered around him and they were listening to his teaching. But suddenly the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees come rushing through with a woman caught in adultery. This would have changed the atmosphere. Changed the atmosphere from quiet study, teaching and listening to chaos and, and anger. They got the woman to stand in front of the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And there was something more going on here. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were setting a trap for Jesus. They were looking to accuse him. And it gets me. It gets me how incredibly calm Jesus is. How in control of an uncontrollable situation he remains. And ignoring the scene, the chaos, Jesus bent down and, 
and wrote in the sand. I mean, who else does that? But they kept going. They kept going. They kept questioning. And Jesus straightened up and said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again, continued to write on the ground, gave them time to think. Jesus was in control of this. He was waiting until the meaning of his words exploded in their minds and boom, those who heard, those who understood, and it started with the older ones. They began to go away one at a time. The chaos, the anger dispersed until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there, the teacher and the listener. Again, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. Then Jesus declared, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And I find that scene incredible. I find it so moving. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees for all their knowledge, their their fine standing and all their show, they so often missed the point. And what took place there in the temple courts was them encountering God for the first time. Only Jesus, only God himself could have said those things. And when we want rules, when we want to justify ourselves, Jesus gives us stories. And when we want the Lord, Jesus shows us grace. He shows us boundless grace so that we can show grace. And reading that, seeing that scene, having those God thoughts, those God emotions exploding inside of us, I think there is an experience for us here. Because we can read that and think this was an isolated incident in the temple courts, but for some reason, It keeps speaking to me. And I need to recognize that I'm not without sin. Personally, that I often have a a stone in my hand, something wrong that I'm holding on to. And that I need to know that I need the grace of Jesus. I need the forgiveness of Jesus. And maybe our first move with faith is realizing that we've gone wrong, that we've done wrong that there is something wrong in our lives and in the world, that we all need grace. We all need forgiveness. And I'd like us all to respond to this. In your update sheet, you'll find an image of some stones. If you want to take that piece of paper, just take that piece of paper. And if you're comfortable with this, I'd like you to, to stand with me. If you want to stand with me. And I'd like us to think. Maybe, maybe close our eyes with this and think. Think about our lives, where we're at. Jesus said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. None of us can throw stones. And as we think about that, and there's going to be some time here, as we think about that, we can screw up 
this piece of paper with the stones on. We can screw that up. We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. None of us can throw stones. And we can drop that stone. Just drop that stone. We can't throw it. We need grace. We need forgiveness. Jesus didn't come to condemn us, to to put us down. He came to lift us up and to to set us free. And doing this, realizing there is something wrong. This may be the first time we encounter God and know his forgiveness and know his grace in our lives. So let's hold that moment. And as Leon plays there, let's allow God to minister into our hearts and maybe start to pick up these words. Jesus, I pray you'd minister your grace and your forgiveness into our lives. God, those stones that we dropped, Lord, we know what they involve. We know what they mean. And Lord, I pray that as we've let go of those, Lord, you would come in. By your spirit, you would come in. And we'd know the heart of God, the heart of compassion and mercy in our lives. Lord, you are boundless in grace. And it's as we recognize that and as we come to you and let go of everything of ourselves, that's when we encounter you, God. Pray that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You can take your seats. Finally, finally here, there is parties, parties where I want you to finish and maybe... With Jesus, we don't immediately think about a party. But that is where he started out, his first miracle. It comes in John 2, verses 1 to 11. And Jesus and his disciples were at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And his mother, Jesus' mother, came over and explained the situation to him. More than that, she started giving instructions. No change there. She called over. She called over the, the servants and Jesus. Jesus changed water into wine. Not just a glass, not just a glass of wine, but six stone jars. That was around 600 litres of, of wine and they were filled to, to overflowing. 
It wasn't cheap wine either. The master of the banquet tasted the wine and said it was the best, the best that he had ever tasted. This was overflowing. This was the best. And on through the Gospels, Jesus is regularly there at tables over food and drink, meeting and talking. I told you Jesus had got style. I like that. He was there with his disciples. He was there with his family, with friends, with tax collectors, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And I think Jesus must have been so much fun to be around. Intriguing, yes. Challenging, yes. Amazing, yes. And fun, often. And when in Luke 15... When Jesus tells that parable of the lost sheep where there was 100 sheep and one wanders off and the shepherd goes after it, goes after that one sheep, leaving the 99 behind. He goes to find the one sheep and when he finds it, he puts it up on his shoulders and he calls his friends around and he throws a party. And I think, there's another one. There's another party. And that one is a heavenly party. Someone once said, Someone once said there is nothing more dangerous than a repeated experiencing of a fine emotion with no attempt to put it into action. There is nothing more dangerous than a repeated experiencing of a fine emotion with no attempt to put it into action. You have to think about that. That quote is another one of those time bombs. And when I'm reading about Jesus, when I'm working out what it must have looked like, what it must have felt like to be with him, When I hear, when I hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, when I read the the healing of the man with the shriveled hand, when I see the woman caught in the act of adultery, it moves me. It moves me. And I experience a, a fine emotion, an emotion of grace, an emotion of forgiveness, of mercy, of compassion, an emotion of love, a meaningful, eternal, fine emotion. And I think, I want to be like him. I want to be like Jesus. And when we experience those fine emotions, we must put them into action. Because if we don't, if we don't put them into action, we can become familiar with it. We can become numb to it. We can become unmoved by Jesus. And that was what happened to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. They knew a lot. They experienced a lot of fine emotions. But it made no difference in their lives. They never put it into action. And their hearts went cold and hard. Someone else once said, All around you, all around you will be people tiptoeing through life. Just to arrive at death safely. But dear children... Dear children, do not tiptoe. Run, hop, skip or dance. Just don't tiptoe. Following Jesus. Following Jesus these last 15 years has taught me lots of things. And one of these is don't, don't tiptoe. A life of faith, a life following Jesus doesn't tiptoe. It runs, it hops, it skips, it it dances. It takes life by the scruff of the neck and says I'm passionate about my faith. And I'm going to try and live it out. The final words here. The final words come from Simon Peter, one of the disciples. In John 6, talking to Jesus, he said, Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Jesus is. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is God the Son. He has the words of eternal life for me. And I know for many of us here, there is no one else to go to. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And I think, I think there may be two responses to this. The first response is if you're here and Jesus doesn't mean that much to you. But maybe you've seen something different here. Maybe you've heard something different here. And Jesus has caught your attention for the first time. Then I want to encourage you. Continue with us. Jesus didn't come to condemn us, to put us down. He came to lift us up and to set us free. Jesus has the words of eternal life. Keep coming to him. Keep hearing more. And I believe you will encounter God. The second response, the second response is if you're a believer and maybe Jesus has become familiar, become familiar. You've become slightly numb, slightly unmoved by him. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Read the gospels again. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Read them over and over. Through doing that, Jesus Jesus will capture your attention again. Jesus is alive and we need to get hold of him as he takes a hold of us. Let's pray. Jesus.